0: I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Angie Lauritsen, whose community involvement includes being council president for the city of Gretna and being a board member for Survivors Rising. Angie Lauritsen's ties to Sarpy County started the day she was born in Bellevue, at the Offutt Air Force Base Hospital. She grew up living on various military bases and eventually landed in Western Iowa, moving to Gretna with her family around eight years ago. Angie received her bachelor's degree from Bellevue University, then spent 13 years in corporate banking and has been an entrepreneur for the past 12 years. Along with being the current council president for the city of Gretna, among numerous community commitments, Angie also created and runs the Gretna Hometown Hero Programme, And is a board member of the Gretna Chamber of Commerce and of Survivors Rising. And you're welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. Before I get into this, I don't know where our conversation will take us. And so I do want to be very um, forward in saying that we could get into items that could be triggering. And so I just wanted to put that warning out there that um, if at any time you do feel triggered, make sure that you do handle self care for yourself and recognize those trigger aspects that you know within your own personal body and make sure that you're paying attention to that and again reach out to a friend and use your own self-care techniques in order to deal with how you're feeling.
0: Can you talk more about the origins of Survivors Rising?
1: Absolutely. JC Giggenbach unfortunately had was a victim of domestic violence. I'm not exactly for sure how many years ago. And when she was Going through the system, going through the steps of holding him accountable, there were, there were all these roadblocks, and there, no one was there to help hold her hand as she was going through all of the steps to bring her perpetrator to to justice. And she felt very much alone. She even uh, there was a bill that was introduced to help her and what she had gone through, and so she actually went down to Lincoln and testified. And again, there was no nothing. There to help her through the process or help with questioning when reporters would approach her or um, understand what her rights were when it came to testifying down at the legislature. There was really nothing set up in the Omaha area that kind of just supported her as a victim and kind of helped through all of the different steps. And so she, it was her brainchild, it was her baby that she started, and she had been running it with. Um, volunteers in the past and it had grown to this thing and if we needed to it to prosper uh, she introduced and won it and went to the women's fund asked for some help about ways to help grow it which was creating a board moving to an executive director position led um, organization instead of a founder volunteer organization she had already had the 501c3 But with partnering with the Women's Fund and helping us through that process, I I am one of the original board members. We started that three years ago. And through that whole process and working with the Women's Fund, having an advocate and having their resources, we've been able to do a lot of things in many different areas in support of survivors. We are an advocacy group. We are not a service provider. We're very clear about that. If you currently are in crisis, if you are currently in a traumatic or a domestic violence situation, then that's what the WCA is for. Um, WCA is where we send everyone, and they'll provide you the resources that best meet your needs. And we are there to be on the backside. Once you're through your crisis, you are outside of your crisis, and now you're thriving in life and you're wondering how you can get out and help support other survivors, that's where you can come and hang out with us. And then we hold, um, we're moving into monthly meetings, monthly get-togethers. And um, now that we're into November and session starts down at the legislature, one of the pieces that I'm really active in is the policy and, and legislative um, aspect of it. Women's Fund, they are a working group of women and they have Tiffany is our contact there that handles a lot of the bills. And so when bills get introduced that first week of session, it's a mad dash to figure out what committees they're going to get assigned to, uh, what kind of stories we need to be telling, what kind of survivorship stories do we need to bring in. But two years ago, I went down and I testified on my first bill, and it was very eye-opening, and you understood why we need Survivors Rising. We need to be able to tell the stories to the senators. There's a lot of lobbyists that get paid to be down there. Survivors don't. And we're the ones with the stories. And that help push legislation through in Nebraska.
0: So Now might be a good time. But if anybody listening is experiencing trauma or close to that context of trauma, they can look at your website, certainly, which I know has a whole list of resources and mm-hmm. media uh, mm-hmm. providers of direct service. And your website is survivorsrising.org? org. Correct. Of course, if there's any immediate issues of safety, then of course nine one one is is the number called. But absolutely, but they can find resources at your website. Correct. You mentioned that you testified, you've been testifying over the last couple of years, and the sense I got from what you were saying was that there's a clear gap between the people that are responsible for policy making and the needs of real people. I wonder if you might elaborate on that a little bit what is it that they're not understanding and what might be coming around the corner as we look at the next legislative session which begins here as you say um, in just a month or two
1: absolutely so i get this a lot and it's and this goes for like why do we still have a legislature right like we've been doing this for what hundred couple hundred years you know 150 years what bills do they need to be doing? Like why are there so many bills that need to be enacted? Haven't we covered everything? Most of the time it's a bill has been passed and they don't necessarily know the repercussions of that bill, the side effects that may happen. So sometimes if we're going back in, we're just adjusting a bill um, to, just to see, just to fix the outcome that happened from that other bill. So we do it, there's a lot of amendments that happen. So a couple of the things there's a protection order bill that I believe it was enacted last year. That one helps a it makes sure that every protection order gets a hearing. And in the past judges were able to just throw out protection orders without a hearing. To be very clear, a protection order is a legal document and most of the times when victims are coming into the police department they're in trauma, they're in crisis, handing them a legal document to fill out most of the time does not get filled out correctly. And because of any errors, if they spell a name wrong or anything that they can put on that legal document, that can be thrown out and, and there's no hearing that is had. So that was one of those um, types of bills. Uh, last, this last session, I February 22nd was a really hard day. I testified on, I think, four separate bills that day. And I testified on five bills total in the last session. One of the bills that we were trying to push through, I believe, ended up just needing an amendment or a administrative function. Basically, if you were being trafficked, if you were a minor, so anyone under the age of 16, if you were trafficked and you're under 16, but you were trafficked by your parents in the state of Nebraska, that would be labeled as child abuse, so you would be able to receive all the resources from DHHS. If you were being trafficked by a neighbor, older sibling, uncle, anyone that is not your parent, the only way that you could get out of that situation was if you were arrested, you'd be put into juvenile detention, and you'd have to go through that process. You would not be eligible for any of the resources under HHS. And so that was a very hard bill to try to talk about and to work through. And it was very evident from all the senators that this was ridiculous. Why 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 do we need a bill for this when it needs to be it sounds like it needs to be an administrative function that we just need to change at HHS. But again, it was January, February of twenty nineteen, and any minor in the state of Nebraska that was being trafficked by someone not their parent was having to go through juvenile detention, which is asinine. It's crazy. Oh, sick and safe leave. This is another bill that we're gonna see this upcoming session. They've done a lot of changes to it sick and safe leave there's a uh, a large amount of our population that are hourly, hourly workers and they're not granted sick leave so we have a lot of victims of violence that cannot get out of their situation because they are also victims of financial abuse and or they feel that if they take some time off to get themselves into a safe place and they miss some hours of work that they would be fired so because they need the money in order to survive in a different location, in a different environment, they do not take that time off. They stay in their situation and it just gets worse or it just perpetuates. So that's another one that we'll see on this upcoming session. The other, we have a Speakers Bureau at Survivors Rising where we walk them through. It's a day-long training that survivors can go through that helps teach them how to tell their story. But we still have some work to do between that gap between survivors and senators because senators seem like these, like they're out of reach and they're not understanding. And so we are working. Rachel Pointer is a, an amazing woman in this space and she has pulled together the Women's Fund, Survivors Rising, um, Coalition for a Strong Nebraska. And we're hosting a luncheon on January 21st in Lincoln where we will have state senators and survivors sitting around a table, having lunch, and with talking points, we're also creating a kind of a how-to for senators on best practices for for engaging with survivors and to make sure that both parties are respected, get us into the same room with each other and have conversations and that we're all humans. That's gonna help both parties. Senators are humans, survivors are humans, and trying to make sure that we are working as effectively as possible.
0: beyond policy. What are the misconceptions that exist that you're trying to circumvent and educate around?
1: You know, I I think back to when I was a kid. You know, I, I'm i 30 years post-crisis. So I think about when I was went back to my childhood. On the outside, we looked perfect. We were going to church three days a week. My dad was in the military. We went out and did things as families that families do. We looked absolutely like the perfect family. But at home, it was we were trying to survive each day. And when I would go to bed at night, I would say, I, I got through today, but now I got to get through tomorrow. And it was literally just learning to get from one day to the next. Now, when I go out into the world and when I engage with people, when I encounter people, it's very much from a place of compassion because I don't know what their life has been like before I met them that day. And I do my best to not judge anyone on how i'm meeting them or how they're meeting me that day just because i i know what i've been through and you can't look at me and know what i've been through and i can't look at somebody else and know what they've been through but we all have a story and we're not special the the statistics on domestic violence on trafficking it's we have statistics for those that have been reported a majority of domestic violence Rapes, uh, trafficking are not reported, and so it's worse than what anybody possibly thinks. Trafficking is not traditionally what you would think. You know, if we can change the the thought process of what it is, and we've come a long way in Nebraska. You know, there's so many victims that get out of trafficking that have uh, felonies; they have records, and it was those things that got them into trouble their warning signs, maybe they're a trigger, trying to get them, some people try to get arrested to get out of their situation, to get away from their perpetrator, but we need to be able to get them out of those situations and expunge their records if we possibly can because they were victims and making sure that we they are treated as victims instead of as perpetrators themselves. So it's really trying to change law enforcement and how they run into different um, individuals, and we've definitely been working. We have a good attorney general that's really put a focus on trafficking in Nebraska. But it's one of those with, with I-80 and 29, there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done and we can be doing a lot better.
0: I, I don't have a huge dream of uh, data, as it were, to share. But looking at some of the work that you've done, some of the work that the Women's Fund of Omaha has done, and others, the, the Women's Fund, for example, says, that every month 900 individuals are sold for sex online in Nebraska, with 70 to 75% of those sold showing signs of trafficking. And I don't have data for Sarpy County, but domestic violence arrests in Douglas County, neighboring to Sarpy, have increased by 49% over the period measured between 2015 and 2017, and more than 5,000 unique victims were served in Douglas County. So this idea that we're in the heartland with all that an expression like the heartland conjures. We're doing ourselves, I think, a disservice if we don't turn and face what I think is a bleak and dark um, stain on what is happening in our communities. So what are some of the other um, challenges that survivors face?
1: I sit here as a person of privilege and I'm very aware of my privilege. I happen to be a Caucasian female. Uh, one of the challenges that we really need to work on is violence against black women is another initiative that we are starting with Survivors Rising, partnering with them and their board and with uh, Women's Fund. People of color across the board are not treated fairly, in my own opinion, when it comes to any forms of violence against people of color. They're not given the same treatment and we need to do better. I would love to be able to expand on that. But again, I'm speaking from privilege and I want to be able to help in that space as much as I possibly can.
0: What kind of pushback have you encountered as you've been doing this work? What kind of crass or inconsiderate or ignorant encounters you've had as you have tried to advocate for survivor voices?
1: Probably the biggest pushback that I've received is this is hard to talk about. People would rather just like put this in a pocket, stick this in a back room and not talk about it because it's hard. It's very hard and it's difficult to talk about. We want to act like it's not happening. When the statistics come out in the state of Nebraska and Douglas and Sarpy County and these huge numbers come out of victims, like it's much easier to be like, yeah, no, that's not happening. Like, I don't want to talk about that. Can we talk about, I I do this in meetings all the time. My husband calls them like truth bombs. I just throw it out there and be like, hey, can we talk about trafficking? Hey, can we talk about domestic violence? Can we talk about, you know, the other, you know, subject that that we can put in there is like suicide prevention. We need to talk about it. It's a huge problem. We don't talk about it. And, but you can only shed a light on it if you're ready to start talking about it. And we have to, if we want to help these victims and teach our young people how to respect each other and their bodies and make sure that they have respect for their own selves and what healthy relationships look like, then maybe we can solve some of these issues moving forward. But we need to make sure that um, it's okay to start that conversation. It's okay to have hard conversations. We're not going to fix anything if we act like it's not happening. We're not going to fix it if um, if we're not willing to talk about it and come up with common
0: sense solutions. How do you go about that? As in, so do you have any advice for how people are listening, whether they've experienced this kind of trauma themselves or knowing that it happens probably closer to them than they actually know, how other members of the community can initiate and engage in uncomfortable conversations?
1: Yeah, so we talk about this a lot. So... One of those first questions that you can ask is, Do you feel safe at home? Do you feel safe here? Where wherever whatever space that you're occupying, ask them if they feel safe and then you tell them, You are safe here. I am a safe place and if you need to talk, I'm here for you. And it's just listening to other people and paying attention to different things and not letting people make excuses for their behavior. If something starts to if somebody is personality is changing tell them that they're in a safe space and you are that person that they can talk to but always be willing and on the lookout for anything that people might be going through and be that person that they can talk to be that resource for them i try to carry information on me for whatever situation i might be in so that it that if i run into somebody that um could be suicidal you have those questions you have the the number that you can call same thing with domestic violence if you're aware of it and you're on the lookout for it then you see it more and you can spot it more but i also work in this area in this space so it's it's hard not to think about it but i also grew up with you know 14 plus years of ongoing abuse so again i i I suffer from the thought of everyone grew up the way that I did and that was the normal so everyone knows that and that's not the case but thankfully that's not the case
0: you don't know me I'm not just one of yours Not incumbent upon those experiencing that trauma to be the ones to save themselves, and yet it then makes me uh, wonder for for perhaps people like myself that that aren't in trauma and look at the world and just see people acting normally. How do I know? Because uh, I certainly don't want to assume that everybody mm. around me is is experiencing trauma, but I also have to understand that the, the data tells me. If I'm in a room of 10 people, one of them probably is experiencing some kind of Mm -hmm. angst.
1: Yeah, what is the statistic? It's one in three women under the age of 18, I could be totally wrong, so don't quote me on that, and one in five men have experienced sexual trauma in their lives. So I was at the Women's Fun Luncheon yesterday, 1,200 people were there, one in three women, one in five men. And you could actually start to divide the room. Into this is how many people have been sexually assaulted, and that's how I join the world. That's how I go out into the world, knowing those statistics. And keep in mind, those are reported. That's not unreported. And you know, so I, I think back. I mean, there's challenges when when you do report. You know, um, I was taught early on, and um, unfortunately, I was taught at a very early age that I won't be believed. If I, if I do report, you know, the first time that I was raped, I was four. And when the same uncle tried to move in with us when he was 19, I was nine, he was 10 years older than me. I was nine and went to my parents and was throwing a holy fit saying he cannot move in with us. This is what happened when I was four. I could describe the day to them. It was only five years previous that this had happened and they didn't believe me. It was like, that. well, I'm sorry that you feel that that happened was how it was approached to me. We're just going to have him. Will you feel better if he comes in and apologizes? It's like, hell no. <laughs> like, I'm not going to feel better, but I'm nine. Like, what choices would I, was I given? And I. so I was taught at nine that my body wasn't mine, and I wouldn't be believed if bad things happened to me. So I was taught early on, and I'm not alone in that aspect. People are taught at early ages those lifelong uh, lessons that they need to unlearn. Because that wasn't, that's not a true lesson. If you pay attention to your body and your you respect your body and your space. But when I was that little, how do you know? Like you're listening to these parents that are supposed to be your caregivers. They're giving you all the love and support, kind of. It was It was a really bad situation. But that was all that I knew. So, it was, you know, growing up in that circumstance, uh, you grew up differently than anyone else around you, but I also am very aware that I'm not alone, and my story is not all that different from many people.
0: To the degree that you feel comfortable and safe, would you mind sharing your story? And I'm thinking about that more in terms of how we might move on from that in our conversation, to use that as a way to share something that is valuable to the community at large. What lessons from your own painful trauma we perhaps as as a community and as listeners can then begin to get our arms around about what we need to do and think about to both deal with trauma that has happened and also to think about preventing trauma in the future?
1: Sure. So I'll try to keep it... Reader's Digest version as best I possibly can. But I always, when I talk about my story, I like to like reiterate where I'm at now. I'm great now. I've been married to my husband, Jason, for maybe 15 years this fall. I believe it's because of him that giving me the space to have confidence in myself. He's the one that helped provide that to me. Nobody else did. And I'm able to be the person that I am today, mother of three, 22 year old that just got out of the Marine Corps. I got a 10 and 11 year old. You know, we have a very successful business and life together. I am doing great. So I just, I like to start off with that because when I first started telling my story, I would forget that piece. And people would come up and they'd be like, Are you okay? And then they would have tears in their eyes. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I totally forgot to tell you that no, I am like nailing this life thing. Like I am doing great. So it's a long history, but as we all have. Um, But my my mother grew up on a farm, very sheltered in her life, very much of a church goer, church girl. And she got pregnant and they got married. And about, she was 18, he was 19. And he was in the Air Force or had enlisted in the Air Force. And so I found out that my father started beating my mother when she was six months pregnant with me and she was isolated. They were on a base in Mississippi, I believe. And so she was very isolated, but had been brought up in a world where you stay together for the children. She was pregnant with me, you stay together. Fast forward, I was three. We were living in Bellevue, he was stationed at Offit. And I remember my brother and I were playing in the basement downstairs. I remember hearing a noise, something made me sneak up the stairs. To see something that I remember I shouldn't have been seeing. And it was, I had seen my dad holding my mother in comfort because he had just hit her. And that was my first memory. You know, as I said earlier, my uncle was babysitting us Experienced uh, the first time that I was raped and I was four. And he was just like, hey, let's go play a game. And the game was come back to the bedroom, pull your pants down kind of game, which any four-year-old, you have no idea what, fine, I'll go play this game. And, you know, fast forward until I started puberty, right? Everybody goes through puberty. I'm not special. Nobody's special. But my, my dad started paying more attention to me in a not good way you know, during those times between four and 13, I was told continuously on a daily basis by my dad that I was nothing. I would be nothing. I was worthless, was not responsible. I couldn't even handle simple tasks. This was his grooming process, right? For years telling us that we would be nothing. And that was very much ingrained in us. And my level of where I could go in life, was very limited by those words and and those the betrayals now when we were out in public there was happier times you know we were the perfect family we have all these great photos of us you know as a family and but when we were home we were worthless we weren't we couldn't do anything and we were stupid and we were dumb whatever all those words i remember eating uh, food off the floor because we, we were not good enough for that day to eat food at the table. Uh, there was days where we were um, told we weren't good enough to sleep in his house. So my brother and I were would sleep outside. And so we had years of being told and perpetuated this from him. And when I was 13 is when he started to show interest in me. In a way that was very non healthy. Thankfully, I knew it was wrong, and something in my brain was like, "He has been a monster, monster." The I remember my brother being thrown across the room when he was two, and hitting a wall and sliding down. The amount of times that we were beat, and my mother was beat, and I would hear her being raped every night. It was, it was such a horrible. I can't even. It's hard to describe all of that. But you get to this point in time where three o'clock in the morning, your dad's walking in with a new puppy to lay next to you in bed. And as he's petting the puppy, his hands roam. Thankfully, that didn't happen every night. Thankfully, I knew that it was wrong. And I think he knew that I knew that it was wrong. That didn't make him stop coming in to the room every night or some nights. But, you know, it had gotten to a point where I knew we were getting close to a point of no return. I, he was pushing on me in ways that I was not comfortable with. And fortunately I was babysitting my aunt's kids. She was the lead singer in a band. So I would stay the night at her house. I'd invited my friend from high school. We were freshmen in high school. No, we were eighth Eighth graders or ninth graders, excuse me. But I knew I had just turned 14. So she had come with me. And while we were there babysitting, the kids had been put... It, my cousins have been put to bed. I tell her the story about what's been happening. And she's like, you have to tell. You have to tell her in the morning. So we get up. It's a Sunday morning. And I go in. I ask for some time with my aunt. I tell her what's been happening. Her first response was... It was only a matter of time. And at 14, I knew that he'd done the same thing to her when they were kids. And that was a real eye-opener to me that this was there, this was the point of no return. So when my mother came to pick me up, my aunt sat with us. As I told my mother what was happening, she was picking us up to take us to church. And I told my mother that morning that Rob and I, my brother and I, had come up with a plan, we were running away. She could either be part of the plan or we were gonna do it ourselves. We went to church, we told the pastor that we needed to speak with him afterwards because she needed to consult with the pastor. And I remember her sitting with us at the back of the church, my mom played the piano. She was the treasurer. She did Sunday school, which now that I'm older, I learned she'd up for all those jobs. A, she loves church loves God. But there was also ways to get her out of the house and away from the abuse was we went to church three nights a week, mostly for her to practice the piano. So we went to the pastor's house after church for a consultation. And that pastor that day looked at my mother and says, the Bible says that you need to obey your husband. And he looked at me and he says, the Bible says that you need to obey your father. I would suggest that you go home.
0: Would fee to be free I wish I could break all the chains holding me I wish I could say all the things that I should say say em loud say em clear for the whole round world hear
1: Thankfully my mother did not listen to him unfortunately my brother's birthday was the next day so all the family was coming over and we are having this big birthday celebration for my brother i I remember being in my room with my cousins and being like don't be surprised if you if we show up at grandma and grandpa's house tomorrow we made out this whole plan my dad was going to work that night so we um, he goes to work that night. We pack our bags. We pack up all of our stuff. My dad works overnights at the post office, or he did back then. And we're like, well, we'll get up at 5. He gets off work at 7. We'll get up at 5, and we'll go to Grandma and Grandpa's house, or we'll drop you off at your friend's house so that we could still go to school. Like, just want to point out, we were still going to go to school the day that we had to sneak out in the middle of the night away from my father. Like, not an okay situation. And because my mother thought... I'm going to be on my own. I still need my job. I can't take time off work. I don't want to get fired. So I need to go to work. My kids need to go to school. So we go to school and it's the, my brother's birthday. And homeroom, they start singing happy birthday to him. He starts crying because happy birthday, like we just left my dad. And my brother didn't experience the same type of trauma that I did. And so this was all very confusing. He knew he was I mean, getting beat and all the stuff that we'd ever been through is not okay, but that was also how we grew up. Like that's that was our normal. And maybe if maybe if we were better kids, he wouldn't get beat. Maybe if we were better, maybe he would treat us better. That was his brain. So he started crying, was very upset, and told the teacher that we were that we had left our dad. So then I get pulled out of my classroom. Is this true? Is your brother telling the truth? I said yes. So then we had to wait for a social worker to come and they said, does your dad own firearms? Does he know that you left? Will he be upset that you left? All of those were, you know, no, he didn't know that we were leaving. Yes, he owns a firearm. Will he be upset? Absolutely. And so the school went into lockdown and we're talking lockdown 30 years ago from March of this year, which meant a teacher in their off period stood and ate their lunch at a door. That's what lockdown was back in the day. My dad actually didn't even notice that we were gone until Tuesday, which was, which was good. But because of the social workers, because the school got involved, then law enforcement was called and he ended up getting arrested. He um, actually got out of jail in a couple of days. He got bonded out, but, um, you know, I, I was able to make the choice back then. My mother followed through with a divorce. We got to keep move back into the house. There was lots of stalking that happened. He lived in the field next to us and would stalk us. Um, so I still have this weird thing, like where I shut the curtains <laughs> every single night because I think people are watching. That comes from him stalking us for months after we moved back into the house. But, um, you know, and later later in life, Uh, my very first boyfriend that I had, um, he, we did run into a situation where we were sexually active. And we, there was a morning that I was like, um, we were headed up to visit his family for some kind. He wanted to have sex before we went up to visit his family. I did not. And he just overpowered me in one of those instances. So that was the last time that I was raped. And so thankfully, since then, um, I wasn't a lot of, I was in a fair amount of unhealthy relationships because no confidence, zero respect for myself, my body. Um, And I was learning to try to gain that confidence. But I think, and I was, when I met Jason, I was on the right spot. When I met my current husband, I was in the right spot to be ready for that type of relationship. And so obviously since then, everything has been has been awesome and great. He says that I'm just late to the party. You know, I I was held back for a lot of years, but I was just late for the party. So.
0: You know, I love music. And every time I hear something hot, it makes me want to move. It makes me want to have fun. But it's something about this joint right here. This joint right here it makes me wanna let it go can't let this thing call love get away
1: from you feel free right now go do what you wanna do can't
0: So it's painful to hear how have these experiences shaped how you now approach the work you do to help other survivors, but also I think to help any any of us, all of us as a community generally. What have you drawn from that is helping you to, to do the work that you do?
1: You know, when I first testified down on Lincoln, I had so many people reach out to me and they were just like, Thank you for your voice. Like you're making it okay to talk about this. Like this happened to me. And I knew at that moment that I can't stop sharing my story because every time I share my story, I give permission to somebody else to share their story or to acknowledge what happened to them. A lot of people don't even realize that they're uh, trauma survivors until after they hear a story and they're like, oh my gosh, that totally happened to me. I just, you know, I repressed it. And you forget about it. And that's what our brain helps us with. Like the very traumatic things in our life that we go through. It's like, I'm going to wash that out of your brain so you can function in life. You know, when I talk about what, you know, whenever you're in a violent sexual encounter, you're being raped. There's something that happens in your brain that's like, I need to go to a place so that I can mentally get through this. And I want this to be over so I can forget about it sooner. And... So when it comes to trauma survivors, I try to meet them in their space, where they're at. I know what my lane is. I am not one, because I recognize that survivors can be in any realm of their survivorship story, and they could be triggered by anything that you may see or do, it does put me in a cautionary place of I just want to love on them and know that I'm there to support them as best as possible. But my work, I think, needs to be down on the advocating side. When I became an elected official, I was like, what's my superpower? I don't know what my superpower is. I don't, like, what can I do? I don't know what I can do. And it took me a while to figure out what my superpower was. My superpower is that other elected officials will answer my phone call. They'll reply to my email. They will meet me for lunch. They'll meet me for coffee. I have better access to other elected officials because I'm an elected official. That's my superpower. I make them have these conversations. I make them face what these survivors are going through. That's my lane. That's where I'm going to stay. And I use my voice to give permission to other survivors in order to use their voice also and to help help them in their journey however best that they where however best I can where and where where they want
0: my help at. Wow. I mean, this should be like a a multi-hour show. We don't, we don't- <laughs> hours so it may feel as if this is getting a little truncated because it is by force of time but maybe that's a nice segue you talked about you're in a happy place in your life and as you said sort of maybe late to the party but but to some degree you're achieving a lot of um, success and happiness in your life part of that seems to be the achievement of becoming an elected official not least in a time when i think um, gender equity is getting the attention it's long deserved. So talk a little bit more about the experience of campaigning to be an elected official and what the experience has been like to be an elected official.
1: You know, we're in Nebraska, and and so I feel, and one of the best things that people know me for and what um, they appreciate me for is that I show up. And the first couple of times I went down to leggy municipalities, Uh, which is where all the municipalities go to learn about new laws. And there's great people that lead that. I love those guys. But you have some elected officials that when I show up at a thing, they said, hey, no, the clerks are supposed to be meeting in this room. And I'm like, actually, I'm not a clerk. I'm actually an elected official. I actually do belong in this room. Um, Or I went, I remember explicitly going up to one of our vendors and grabbing some candy off of the desk to hand to my other elected official friend that was with me, who is a ginger haired 21 year old at the time. And she's like, You know, that candy is for the electeds. Um, who are you interning for? And I, w- I was like, No, we are the elected officials. You're actually our vendor. He's low on sugar. I'm just going to grab this candy. And there's, Yes, I look younger. I'm actually 44. going to be 45 here soon. I do have that benefit. But no, I'm an elected official. And so I know because of those circumstances, I have to keep showing up to remind all of the older white males, which I love them. There's some that are great. There's some that are have some work to do. But I need to keep showing up. I need to keep reminding them that I am an elected official and that it's okay for a younger female to be in this role. You know, just after yesterday, you know, yesterday we were at this luncheon, and it was very much of a, we need more women to run. We need more people of color to run. We need more women to run, support them, love them, cherish them, support them. And then I go to an uh, an event last night, and it's a cocktail hour, and I have a dear friend of mine that is there, and she's, she loves to introduce me. Hey, this is Angie, City Council President out in Gretna, and she's introducing me, and um, I when you're running for an office and you're getting introduced that you are running for an office, this other lady that she, I was, she was introducing me to was like, really, seriously, no, Oh, you are being serious. You seriously, you're doing that. And it like, I was like, yeah, I, I don't know how to respond to that. And after being at this luncheon with all these amazing people that day and like saying, we need to be sort of supporting these women, I knew in that instant, we haven't done the work yet. Like We still have so much work to do. If we have other women that are shocked that women are running, we have work to do. And so, um, I whenever I get into an encounter with somebody, I said, what office do you want to run for? I think you need to run for office. And I encourage anyone to run for office, no matter the gender, no matter their age, no matter their experiences. I've been in a lot of circumstances You don't have to be all that smart to be an elected official. Please run.
0: (laughs) Well, I do think you're pretty smart. So that may not be a complete requirement, (laughs) but I do think you're pretty smart. What is it, given everything we've been talking about, that just in your life gives you hope that the future is going to be a more equitable, happy, compassionate, kind place
1: what gives me hope is the conversations that we're having the relationships that everyone is starting to build not that we haven't in the past but new kinds of relationships supportive relationships um, but the conversations that we get to have now we get to, I get to sit here with you and have a conversation about domestic violence survivorship and talk about running for an office and We've never used to talk about domestic violence, and ever. But we get to sit here and have this conversation. That gives me hope that we get to have this conversation in an open forum like this. There's a lot more groups in Nebraska that are popping up that support candidates. And however the voting pans out in the end, as long as we have choices, that gives me hope.
0: Angie, you give me hope. <laughs> thank you
1: thank you for having (laughs) me we all do better when we all do better that means everyone all genders and colors just love one another
0: we'll have so much fun my guest today has been angie lawrence and whose community involvement includes being Council President for the City of Gretna and being a board member for Survivors Rising. Again, Angie, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar Mctizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Lives Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.